You're listening to the CMS Podcast, and I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Manager for the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. MIT Comparative Media Studies celebrated its 10th anniversary this month, so we threw a big bash, inviting back all our alumni, welcoming MIT faculty and friends, and together getting a chance to look back over 10 years of an amazing program, and forward to 10 amazing years more. You can find all of the anniversary podcasts and a huge array of other podcasts from CMS over the years in the iTunes store and on our website at cms.mit.edu. I'm sure more people will be filtering back. Uh, the attractions of lunch hold, hold, linger, and uh, the temptation of a day like today with so many old friends around is just to stay and talk. But I think we're going to have a great discussion in this room. As with William, I want to urge people to pop up at any point in the discussion with comments and questions. We really do mean this to be multi-directional and inclusive, participatory even. Um, the, um, I wanted to begin by introducing Michael Epstein, who's one of our alums and is going to be running a rather interesting activity tomorrow morning. And I wanted to have a chance to tell you guys about it a little bit. Can you just pop up a mic? Yeah, button? I think so. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm a CMS 04 grad, and I've been working for the last year on uh, this project. Let's see if I have liberty. And there we go. Let's pop it up on the map. Cool. Um, I hope people know where the Liberty Hotel is. Uh, it's basically one stop from here on the red line into Boston. And at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, uh, I'm going to be meeting a group there. Uh, hopefully, most people. We'll bring an iPhone, um, but if not, um, you can see me or, or send me an email. I can bring you uh, an iPhone or a video device to go on a walking tour called Walking Cinema, Murder on Beacon Hill. Uh, it was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it's basically a walking tour that goes uh, through the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Boston. It's eight stops. It's going to take about an hour and a half. And it's, um, it's, a, it's basically an iPhone app that uses GPS to bring up location-based videos that tell the grisly story of the disappearance of the richest man in Boston in 1849, and then the uh, trial and um, travails of a Harvard professor accused of uh, killing him and cutting up his body and hiding it in the Massachusetts General Hospital laboratory where he worked. So he's the only convicted felon in Harvard history that, that we know of. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's actually not... <laughs> um, it's not that scary, you know. It's actually told a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and it's, it, it's the only iPhone app that's been accepted to screen as a feature in a major film festival. So it's a, it's a real transmedia experience. Uh, we, we aired it on Sunday at the Boston International Film Festival, and audiences really liked it. And so I'm excited if uh, people want to go out and experience the real real of it. Uh, again, you can um, just, there's a sign-up sheet outside at the table here where you can sign up and just leave your email. Let me know if you need a device or headphones. Uh, and we'll all meet in the upstairs lobby of the Liberty Hotel at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Thank you. So do we want to, we can go back here. Oops, I'm trying to figure out what happened to the, oh, I see. Oops. Having an interesting time with this mouse. Especially, here we go. All right, 
So to our, we've been sort of working through CMS Greatest Hits, some of the kind of animated concepts that we've been talking about as a community over the last 10 years today. And this one, this session is first of all about participatory culture. And this is an idea that's really animated my own work for more than 20 years. That I first used the term participatory culture in the title of Textual Poachers, Television Fans and Participatory Cultures, which came out more than 20 years ago and really grew out of what I was observing in the fan communities at the time was a very different relationship to mass culture than the notion of spectatorship as it had been described in much of the critical studies and, and cultural studies literature, that I was describing a group of people who were not content simply to watch, but were very invested in creating, in sharing what they created, and joining communities around the their, their responses to media, that media, mass-produced media was the raw materials out of which their culture emerged. And what they did with those raw materials turned out to be far more important than whatever the, the sort of resources they were borrowing from mass media. I came to MIT and found myself smack in the early days of what we euphemistically call the digital revolution and saw so many people here dealing with new modes of learning, new ways of engaging with media. They were all designed to empower consumers and participants in one way or another to be part of larger communities. And I mentioned last night in my references the, the meetings that we had in the basement of the Media Lab, the narrative intelligence group, which really is how I learned to think about digital media. It was at the tutelage of a whole generation of Media Lab grad students who taught me more than I could teach them in the exchange that was taking place between technology and culture. And we've gone forward with that concept. It's sort of as CMS took roots, it's deepened further. It's deepened into our interest in new media literacies and learning, and there's sort of the white paper I helped to write for MacArthur, laid out a theory of participatory culture as a learning site that was built heavily on the work of people like James Paul G and Mimi Ito and others that were involved in that initiative. And further still, we've engaged with it in civic engagement through first the work with the Civic Media Center that Mitch and I helped to create and then through the work that Sangeeta and I are doing at USC. So part of what's going to be distinct, part of what's different about this session is we're bringing in people who, from uh, collaborators, uh, we're bringing in visiting scholars, and we're bringing in some of the people who've gone with me to USC to help set up uh, CMS West, so we say, the sort of Western, Western end of the research that we've been doing here. But education and civics have been part of the CMS mission from the very beginning. Uh, even before we launched the program, we ran a series of conferences called We've Wired the Classroom, Now What? That several, several people around the room participated in these exchanges between media researchers and teachers in the field around Boston to talk about education and what was taking place as computers were moving into the schools. And we also ran a series of events on democracy and new media that led to the book for MIT Press that David Thorburn and I edited together, which I think has become an important collection for thinking about the debates about democracy and new media. So this is very much part of the entire flow of what we've done in comparative media studies. So on this panel, I'm going to begin by having each of the have a question for each of the speakers to sort of show how they fit into the, the larger narrative of this. And I'm going to begin with Mitch, uh, because as I said, for me, it began in the narrative intelligence group. And I've struggled through the years to articulate how CMS connects to the Media Lab. And it's a difficult question. 
we get it wrong, we hurt each other's feelings, you know. There's a struggle to figure out the right way to articulate those connections. And I think as I've reflected back on it just this weekend, I'm realizing because it was born in the basement of the Media Lab, that there's so much Media Lab already in the thinking of CMS, that it's very hard to define what we do that you don't, and vice versa, without us seeming to encroach on each other's territories. But I wondered your reflections on a decade plus of collaborations and co-teaching and so forth that's taken place between the two programs. Well, it's been great to have interacted in many different ways over the last 15 or so years uh, through different types of joint projects like civic media, but also classes and other ways. I think in, in thinking about the links to the Media Lab, one thing that makes it difficult is the Media Lab isn't any just one thing. It's a pretty eclectic place. Uh, but for me, where I see the strongest connections uh, is that the parts of the Media Lab that to me seem are, are, that are especially important and the themes that are especially important are the ideas of thinking about technologies as ways of empowering people to create new opportunities for themselves and their communities. And I don't necessarily say that's something that is true of all Media Lab projects or is necessarily the top priority of all Media Lab researchers, but for me, that's a real central uh, priority, the idea of thinking about how technologies, whether we're designing new technologies or studying the use of technologies, to empower people to create new opportunities for themselves and their communities. And to me, that's a place where I've seen Henry and then CMS as real kindred spirits, because I see a lot of ideas within CMS resonating with that in many different ways. Uh, so I think, and unfortunately, don't see enough of that across the MIT campus or the culture at large but really thinking there's obviously a lot of work around here on new technologies, but technologies can be used in so many different ways, and the idea of technologies for empowerment, you know, for personal expression and creation and connection with community is something that there's just not enough focus on, and I think it's sort of a, a, a core element where uh, CMS and the Media Lab, at least are elements of the Media Lab, stand strongly together. So, so Karen, you came into the program already having some experience in the ed tech world, but found a very different way, I think, of thinking about education here. And I wondered if you could just share a little bit of your journey through some of this. Yeah, uh, well, I came in to the program really knowing nothing and, and not really being very confident. And I feel like I came out still not really knowing anything, but feeling at least com <laughs> more confident, more confident about that. But, but, but feeling like I really had that legitimacy in terms of participating in the conversation, asking the right questions, and being able to really further di the discourse around education and media. Because you know, again, you know, these, are, these are questions that have you know, gone through humanity. I mean, how do we teach? How do we, you know, what are the best ways to learn? How do we reach people? How do we communicate our ideas? And, and I think that being at CMS really helped me understand what those questions were, but also to start the conversation and, and provide some kind of framework and, and value to thinking about that. And, you know, I really, I switched gears so much in a way I, I'm still very much embedded in education, but, you know, I, I started, uh, I, you know, I've done lots of different things, but my most recent job was working at Scholastic where 
I basically was brought in in part because I had gone through the CMS program and one, was one of Henry's students. And actually, for the first year of being at Scholastic, I was introduced as, you know, oh, this is one of Henry's students, you know. So <laughs> it's like, you know, and, be, and because of what I had learned here and, and the kinds of questions I was asking, I was speaking directly to the president of Scholastic and helping to change that company and evolve a company that's been around for 80 years, 90 years now. And, and really have an effect on the way that we're reaching students today, uh, you know, in, in every single classroom. And, you know, I think that, you know, I felt like I really added a lot of value in that I was asking questions that no one else was asking. Uh, and now, you know, really just in terms of other things that I'm working on, I'm, I'm starting a new field. I, be, besides just, you know, working full-time, I also... Uh, I'm a doctoral student part-time and in actually in education. And so I'm able to, from an academic perspective, contribute as well. And uh, it just finished um, and launched this new book, which, you know, again, asked these questions that no one else was asking before, which was, you know, what are, what are the potential for games to be teaching ethical thinking skills? And, you know, starting this new field and thinking about the intersection of ethics and video games and, and non-digital games. And those are questions people really only started asking very recently. And, and I'm, you know, trying to be at the forefront of this field asking those questions and finding the pe people that can start to answer them. And I think that, you know, I feel like my experience at, at MIT and in CMS really you know, told me, you know, helped me figure out that this was, you know, this was my life's goal and my life's passion, but gave me that confidence and that legitimacy to contribute to those questions and, uh, and to start asking questions that no one else was asking. So, Aaron, you're one of the research managers, and you came, you came here with an MFA in media production and a career as an entrepreneur in the educational space. So maybe you could tell us a little bit of your story of how you connected with CMS and how your thinking may have changed as a result of the discussions here about participatory culture. Sure. Um, so I actually feel like um, from actually being as a practitioner and entrepreneur, um, I've had a total mind shift um, coming to comparative media studies. Uh, specifically with, with being out there in the field, it was always just trying trial and error you know, try something and see how it works and then figure it out and, and always ask those questions like, okay, why is this working so well or why is this not working so well? And coming to comparative media studies allowed me to say, okay, I've seen, I've seen for example, um, creating walled gardens, you know, creating spaces where we, we control the places that kids are learning in and, we, we, and what is working and what is not working in those spaces and how can we actually push it further to, to allow for a more, you know, trusting opportunities, to trust the students that they understand what they're doing and that we can give them those spaces to move from a private to public space. Um, so, th so I, and I also noticed about privacy. I worked a lot in thinking through, you know, verifying kids and registrations and how do we, like, protect their privacy. And um, as coming to um, CMS and talking with other researchers, that, you know, really having deeper conversations around, even with good play on the digital media and ethics, we really were able to start exploring um, the that there are promises in, in sharing privacy. There are the, there's perils and promises. There's always kind of a balance between the two. And in design, how do we actually start 
creating new features. So, Pilar, you're, you're one of our visiting scholars, and you, you've come back many times to be part of the CMS world. I come to think of you as much part of the CMS community as, as anyone else that's been here today, because you're, you're one of us now. So, and you've taken some of those ideas back to Spain, where you're deeply involved in educational missions. So, obviously, you found something valuable here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you, what, how CMS and uh, the, the ideas here have helped shape your thinking? Yeah. Well, thanks so much for asking me. Uh, when I was thinking about how to present some ideas that I bring from the from CMS to Spain, I have like three ideas. The first one is how we can understand something better. And I let, let me to tell you some anecdote that for what reason I came here. I came here because in one conference in London, like in 2000 something, I met uh, Henry, who was the presenter, and I was like really shocked because he was putting together Bactin and the new, more new games. And I told one of my students, oh, you need to go with this guy. You need to go. You need to go to learn from him. And she was afraid. And I said, well, I will go. And then, <laughs> and then I wrote to Henry and I came here and I was so surprised, you know, because it seems to me that the idea of participatory culture was new in some way, but in another way is not new, because I was learning a lot about participatory culture, but in another way, like guided participation or culture from psychology from other authors, you know? When this is what we explain. I explain things because we put together theory and practice. The second thing is how we learn. This is really interesting for me. I think we learn not just me, me and all the people who are working with me in Spain. And I would want to work with all the teachers in Spain to change school, you know. I don't believe in the traditional school. I want to change the school. What we learn here, the first thing we learn is I begin to be uh, active, a proactive participant in the media. I remember a lot of time spending playing games and Clara teaching me playing games. You know, one of my grandchildren told me many times, but you are a teacher of games, but you don't know how to play. And you know, and this small kid is teaching me all the time how to play. This is the first thing I learned at the MIT. Theory is not valuable for boy by themselves. You need to go involved. You need to play. I I spend a lot of time playing Final Fantasy, participating in all this new media. Then I learned also from the new media, the new media literacy project. Sometimes it be I was critic because it seems to me that kids need to be much more participant. You know, I don't think we need to to work also with teachers. When we work with kids, we learn a lot from the kids. And this is the idea I want to put in practice. And the last idea is now, when I went to see Henry now to, the, to Los Angeles, I begin to understand what does it mean civic engagement. Civic engagement for me is to be, I don't want to use values, but this is what we act. We need to act ethically. This is the main problem. And I want to tell you that I, I learned to act here also at MIT. And this is a big deal for me. I work with big companies in Spain, and I learned a lot how to do that here. Just looking at you, how you do. 
I was working with Electronic Arts and I was working with Microsoft and it had been a big problem for me because, you know, uh, we need to participate all together and this is a really interesting experience when I work with Electronic Arts. We work the president of the company, the people from the school, the kids and the media. And you know what is the idea? The idea is to change the ideas of Spanish people because they need to value commercial games. Many times I have ethical dilemmas, but I need to work with those people because I believe in commercial games as a tool for, for improve. And this is the way that I understand participatory culture. Participate in real in virtual and also in transmedia world. And thanks so much. Thank you. So finally, I, Sangeeta, I sort of held you to last, even though you entered the story a little earlier than some of the others. But two moments in our lives, I think, we've intersected now. And the first is when I threw you a major curveball. You came to us having not played games at all. And you know, <laughs> being a dancer, uh, someone who worked in, in uh, Procter & Gamble and so forth, and we put you on the Games to Teach project. Yes. And you brought so much to that project in terms of getting us to think about games in relation to bodies uh, and so forth. And I think it was transformative for that project to have you. And now we're working together at USC again after a number of years apart. And I just wanted you to share a little of your, your journey through all of that. I have to say I'm kind of glad that we have a second opportunity to work together because in thinking about this, I feel like CMS has really influenced me a lot. And there's a reason why I came to CMS in the first place, but I think it took me a while to digest everything. <laughs> and, and I've only, I feel like in completing the PhD, I actually realized that I wrote a CMS PhD. But, um, and a lot of the other things that I've done also since CMS were really products of CMS in many ways. But um, I don't think coming out of CMS at the time when I graduated, I would have recognized that as openly. And I think um, the biggest thing that CMS did for me, or that, you know, was, I mean, I think people have said it before, but I, I you know, I grew up in between cultures, in between disciplines. You know, I was a dancer, but then I was also doing a lot of international <coughs> development work. I'm a Czech Nepali that kind of moved back and forth between Nepal and the Czech Republic. Um, I've kind of, and I feel like I was often in spaces, like when I was at the LS, at LSE, where the the sort of different areas that I had um, were tolerated or accepted, but they were definitely not celebrated. It was kind of like, okay, yeah, you're a dancer, but now we're talking about gender and development, and you know. Can you please not, you know, you can bring it in as an interesting anecdote, but don't actually use it too much. And CMS was a place where, you know, at, at least in our year, it was, I mean, there were no, it was really, there were no borders in terms of what was a valid discussion to have and stuff. And um, it was crazy at times, but it was incredibly empowering. And it was, um, you know, we were just, I mean, us ones here, and so I'm going to mention Bali Space that we worked on. So, you know, out of all the discussions that we had and this idea that you can kind of do anything, Zan Aswin and I decided to do a project around the questions of the Bo Bollywood, um, Bollywood fan cultures and the way that Bollywood inspires that. And we looked at dance, because I was a dancer, so we were looking at how um, undergraduates at 
MIT are using Bollywood dance to express their diasporic identity, and then we ended up editing videos and you know things that we were really not equipped to do. We just come out, came out of the workshop, <laughs> and we were like editing and doing green screen, green screen shooting, and totally took off more than we could chew. But it was it was an amazing experience. I mean, number one, this totally inspired my my PhD dissertation. Number two, like the friendships that we formed were incredible. I mean, to this day, like if I have a problem, they're the first people I'd call. And you know, the undergrads that we formed a relationship with um, are still in touch with me, and they still like you know they're actually mentioned in my dissertation. They have sites now where they mention us and stuff. And so it's been a it's been a really um, enriching experience in that sense. But also coming out of CMS, I felt like um, I guess. I feel like there are different areas, and I'm just going to talk one sentence about each one because I still have this split identity going on, and it's probably going to continue forever. But as an artist, I really learned that you know it's the, that the story can be told across several media, and so I use dance. I've made a film. Now I'm writing. You know, I'm translating my dissertation into a book. So it's not really I can move between different media's media forms depending on what the story is, and that wouldn't have occurred to me before I came to CMS. I was a dancer, and that was the mode I was using. And now I feel much more free to do that. So now we're, for example, choreographing a dance over Skype to see how that works. But it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> and then the second one is to, you know, to take action. And that was, um, we actually started, I started a Prague Bollywood Festival after I got back to Prague. And uh, just, you know, we were just like, there's no space for us here. This is with other minority people. In the <laughs> and we were like, the city has no space for us. And we're like, well, let's make a festival. And so we've used Bollywood to create this space where people come and we've really used the performance of spectatorship and to bring audiences. Um, it's hard to, the, there's a lot of minority tensions in the Czech Republic and so we get very different audiences who have never sat in a, in a hall together and we get them to come together and we really encourage them in the old style of Bollywood films to, and the Hindi history to kind of perform their spectatorship, so dance when the songs come on, whistle at the stars, whatever they want to do and it's just become a really great space and I, it's also made me feel like we've made a statement in, in the Czech Republic itself. And then last one is really the question of participation and having written my dissertation on Bollywood dance um, and the and the live performance that's been encouraged by that and the meanings and the engagement and civic engagement that's been encouraged by that I feel like I would have never put together that dissertation in that way I probably would have done a more of a film analysis dissertation if I had not gone to CMS and so now I feel like I'm pushing it even further to see how that can fit together with civic engagement in the group that we run at, at USC fantastic so I want to sort of cut across what we've, the, the, the sort of work that you've each done, clearly one point of contact between many of you on the table is play and learning. Uh, you know, Mitch talks about lifelong kindergarten and his work, and you know, uh, all of us are involved in the notion of play. And that still seems to be, when, I, when people read my, the white paper I wrote for MacArthur, the fact that we listed play as a skill is something that comes up in almost every conversation. It's something people have trouble grasping. What did it, what's the value of play for education? What's the value of play for learning? And I wonder, just wanted to open that topic up and see what any of you wanted to share around, around that set of issues. Why, why should education be, what's the ties between play and learning? And why should educators be more aware of play as they think about what they do? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least uh, for me, when I think about uh, teaching ethical thinking through play, I think about you know, first of all, play is just something that's always been part of humanity, and it's just, it's very natural, but in some ways, the idea of 
play as being supporting ethics and values is also very innovative, oddly enough, and, and almost controversial. But when I think about play, I think about the idea that uh, you know, you're kind of trying on new identities, you are um, getting uh, your learning contextualized, uh, there's an authenticity about that, and then it, it's, you know, you're able to almost transform because you can kind of break down boundaries of propriety and you're able to, you know, play with rules, play with a, a new system, uh, play, play with uh, other people's values, other people's ethics, and you don't have to worry about the real world consequences and implications, but you can actually iterate through possibilities and, uh, you know, possible consequences. And for me, I think that's a really powerful way to be uh, supporting the learning of ethics, for example, through play and, and uh, you know, through games. Um, you know, but I think that, you know, there's so many other, you know, there are other ways to be teaching that, but I think that play is, is really powerful because you're able to, you know, be someone else or be yourself and be able to reflect on uh, the values that you have. I mean, one thing, I th when I think about play, I do think of play as a type of stance towards the world. And maybe it's important to separate it out since there's also a lot of work going on these days in education and in CMS in particular around games. Sometimes these things get mixed together and people hear play and they just think about games, which I think is a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, one thing that came to mind is one experience I had. This is quite a while ago now. There used to be these annual conferences um, in Amsterdam, where they would pick a different theme each year, Doors of Perception, and one year was focused on play. And I remember I went there, and, and in the conference, they were showing a lot about the latest video games, and Lara Croft was one of the things, and they were showing off all of these latest games, and that was part of what play was about. And I remember on the last day of the conference, I played hooky. I, I left the conference because I wanted to go visit the Anne Frank house, which was just a few blocks down from the conference. And in some ways, I felt a little guilty that I was sort of, you know, skipping out on the conference, and I thought I was doing something that didn't really have much to do with play. Uh, you, know, you know, how could it be, you know, someone who was holed up in this house in, in, during World War II? But as I spent time there, what I realized was Anne Frank, in my mind, had this really playful stance towards the world. So even though it was, it was very far detached from the video games that were being shown at the conference, in my mind, it was a way of sort of looking at a, someone who had this sort of stance towards the world where they were experimenting, exploring, trying out new things. And for me, that's what play is really about. It's this approach towards constantly experimenting and trying things out and testing the boundaries. And I do think it links very closely with issues around participatory culture. And as it applies to education, there's still too much in this world of people thinking of this transmission model of learning. That education is about delivering information or transmitting information from one to another, as opposed to this active effort of experimenting, exploring, which I see as at the essence of play. So for me, this idea of applying participation to learning and education is about this, you know, this stance towards experimenting, exploring, uh, testing out boundaries, which, which I see as at the essence of play. You know, just to kind of add that about um, Anne Frank, it was even in her own environment, which could have been really, really depressing, but she, did, she chose, she had made her own a, a choice to actually look at her environment in a different way, you know, which kind of helped her mindset in that whole entire process of being 
up there in the attic. Um, and I, you know, the interesting thing about play for new media literacies is that when we first pilot um, tested our material, um, the one um, the one activity that every school picked up, every pilot site, every teacher, was fail and fail often, which was a challenge that explored the new media literacy play. And each of them kind of took it and adapted it and used it in different ways. Are you, you actually worked on fail and fail often. Yeah, exactly. So it was very popular. <laughs> so you should be proud. Um, it's very popular challenge. And um, even as we went into um, current work with um, New Hampshire educators um, who are testing it, who are not te just testing our work, but they're really struggling. We've given them kind of this open environment of professional development. And we're lucky because the, um, the technology director of education at the state level of New Hampshire has really given us the space to allow for messiness. And so she's, she said, okay, we'll let you play with our educators and you know, try these new forms of professional development. What are you gonna do? Do you have a, do you have a do you syllabus or can you write down? Well, can we just experiment with them? And, um, and, and they're letting us do this. And what's interesting is the first skill, even with this new group, has been play. Because we realize we have to go back to kindergarten. You know, the whole, maybe that's why you titled it. I mean, we forget that, we, that in kindergarten, we learned a lot that we can continue to extend throughout our whole lives. And you, we, somewhere in the second or third grade, we get stuck on standards and testing and certain environments and structure. and you know, to, we need to be able to throw that out and start over and, you know, really begin to go back to kindergarten. <laughs> to me, it sounds a little bit like you're describing CMS. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the, the disconnect comes when you actually do go to the third grade and you leave CMS behind <laughs> and yeah. you're suddenly in a PhD program and you're like, oh, what do you mean I don't get to do that anymore? So I think that's, you More know, places would be like this. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I just that was just a, I was not planning to say anything, but as you were describing it, I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, play is like three things. I am coming from video games in this case. I know that play is not video games. I know, but it's, in some ways, for me, play is magic circle. Uh, when we put the video games into the classroom. Uh, kids, uh, adolescents, begin to, to learn from another way. This, this world, magic cycle, for me, is really, really powerful. And it's related to other concepts. First one is simulation, and the other one is involvement. I think we need to teach in that way. And I want to say something about digital toys. Digital toys are changing the way the kids play? I think yes, because small kids are taking digital games, how they learn from digital games, playing, but playing like exploring in the way that you said. But the, the, main, thing, the main word for me is magic circle. So, so another key concept running through the way we've thought about participatory culture and education is remixing, right? Uh, and I think it connects again the Media Lab and CMS in some very powerful ways, that if my concept grew out of studying fans, remixing media content, but all of the projects are looking at how we take existing materials, whether pieces of code or pieces of culture, and remixing them and the process of learning through remixing. And again, I want to just throw the general topic open to you guys to share your reflections on it. 
Are we all doing that? Yeah. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking. Well, in a way, I mean, the, the, the notion of the remixing or the act of remixing and the, the agency involved, you know, it's at the heart of so many of the groups that we're looking at at USC. I feel, um, just to give a little bit of background, we're, we actually have a small research group there that's looking at um, the way groups that, communities that form around participatory culture um, Oftentimes, fandom can transition towards explicit forms of civic engagement in different ways. So we have, you've probably heard, since all of you have heard Henry speak before, you've probably heard him speak about the Harry Potter Alliance. We have the Anonymous group. Um, we have, but we also have groups like Price Scope, which are, which actually came together around diamonds and ended up having very explicit political discussions. And it feels like the, I mean, the act of remixing and the ability, I have to say the ability to do that with the media today is actually really crucial to these groups. But at the same time, I feel like these groups would have existed anyway. So I feel like they were remixing, the idea of remixing is actually crucial to the way they express their civic engagement or engage, yeah. Talk. Uh, I just finished, well, not a while ago, I guess it's going to be released soon, a whole chapter on remix culture for learning. Um, so I'll try keeping this short <laughs> instead of repeating the whole chapter. Um, but uh, re remix was, I, I would say remix or even the new media literature. <laughs> 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 Obviously something you said. I know. <laughs> Like, are you going to jump in my lap? What's going on here? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, hold on. My heart has to go back down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's see here. Um, so let, let, let's replay that. I'm of doing a whole chapter. Okay. So, so um, I'll just hand you that chapter as you run out. <laughs> um, so, so let's see here. Remixing. Um, one of the things we found when we were uh, kind of early on, we decided as we developed resources around the new media literacies is that we didn't want to be prescriptive. You know, we didn't want to create just standalone curriculum where teachers would just take it and use it as is. Because as we know, something, you know, James Paul G. talks a lot about is situated learning and the whole idea that every context is different. And so thinking about that, often we tried creating um, um, less challenges or material that people could adapt and, and personalize in their own ways. Um, and I think that what inspired us was, was going and looking at media makers that are doing this in their own art form. So we have a, we have a whole collection of DJ artists and we talked a lot with DJ artists how, how they were, how they are, I love this, I think it was um, as DJ Spooky said that um, we are hunters and gatherers and, um, and we hunt and gather and we collect and we sample from that and that creates new, makes new creations. And um, I think that teachers need to realize that they, they are hunters and gatherers. It's not that they actually always create lesson plans from scratch, but we co-opt from things we learned in perhaps in our own educational setting of going and getting a degree to actually talking to other teachers and saying, oh, that's interesting and I'm going to co-opt it and kind of relate it into my own terms for the discipline that I, my, my learning objectives that I'm sharing. And so in a sense, it, it, it's that we're all remixers and that we're providing now a vocabulary for people to actually begin to identify themselves at it, as it. And, and may that connect, you know, on this theme of we're all remixers, 
and yet, after recognize that, it then becomes even more uh, incomprehensible how we have a whole education system set up that specifically is, is against it and sort of uh, portrays it as a way that it's, it's particularly not the way of learning. So there's this incredible disconnect. Now, I do think this is, again, one of the contributions I see from CMS is trying to help elevate and highlight those types of disconnects and then to take some of the ideas that are seen from the media world and help people use that in a way to rethink core ideas about you know, education and learning. And I think we're still in the process of that happening. I think we see it in you know, our work that you know, this project that our group has worked on, this software called Scratch, where kids create their own interactive stories and games and share them online. Uh, and more than 25% of the projects that kids put up there are remixes of other projects that are already on the website. But you st we saw in the beginning, and it continues, to how you know, kids will say, you know, so-and-so stole my project. And again, the initial reaction, and it's because of the way that they've grown up, I think oftentimes because of the school culture in which they've grown up, where of sort of building on someone else's work is seen as stealing someone's work. Uh, and there's this, again, I think it also points to the fact that it goes beyond, and again, I think there's another hallmark of, of CMS, of going beyond just the technological infrastructure. It's one thing to provide a technological infrastructure that supports and uh, facilitates remixing. But what's even more important is to support a new, new attitudes, new social practices, new ways of thinking about it. I think that's one of the most important things that you know, we need to be doing is to take some of these ideas, but then see how they can get into the culture in new ways so that people start thinking about the process of learning in a new way that builds on some of these ideas from you know, the idea of remixing. So. Um Sorry, I just move this a little closer. Uh, so one of the projects that I actually worked on uh, totally took a lot of those ideas, the idea of having a flexible curriculum and also the idea of kind of changing, shifting those attitudes uh, away from standards, but also, you know, thinking about sort of that flexibility um, in the way that the teacher is teaching materials, but also how to integrate some of the digital media into the curriculum, uh, was a project that I worked on with Channel 13 uh, called Mission US, and actually very much inspired by a lot of the work that I did at CMS on my uh, graduate thesis, which was on uh, reliving the revolution, which was inspired in part by the revolution project for Games to Teach, and uh, totally took a lot of the same ideas that I had incorporated into my graduate thesis and gave it to um, building this game on the American Revolution and looking at the Boston Massacre from multiple perspectives. And what's great is that uh, it was Channel 13 and it was part of this grant to support civic education. And basically what they did was they told, you know, any any of the local uh, public broadcasting stations, you know, just roll with it. Like some, it just needs some kind of digital media component, needs some kind of civic engagement, and build something. And so we created this game, and we also created a curriculum around it that was very flexible. And we actually ended up winning the grant, um, and were able to complete the game. And it's going to be in free and available to all classrooms to actually use. Um, and what's really exciting is that I was able to participate on a panel a few weeks ago at a Channel 13 celebration. And what they did was they brought in teachers who had used the game in the classroom to talk about how they used the game. And, and each teacher used it completely differently. And it was completely valid. And it completely supported the learning goals that we had set out with. But every single teacher had their own unique spin on it. And they used the materials. And the, 
the really important part of that is that it's not just about the game. It's, you know, it's really about that teacher. It's about the scaffolding. It's about the other materials. It's about what the kids were contributing, the students were contributing. And we tried to make a game and, and really an experience that could be flexible in that way and could be supported and actually was really successful. And I think that, you know, really is due to a lot of the key ideas that we have here at CMS. Following the conversation here, it surprised me all of us are thinking that uh, we need to, to help teachers and kids to reflect. And in Spain, we are working in that way with video games. And what we do is uh, putting together the, the things that kids are playing and then uh, any other thing that they can do, like something like machinimia. The main goal for us is that the kids need to be conscious of the rules of the game, how the game is working, because in that case, kids need to think about that. And what is the most surprising thing for me is how this multimedia production that the kids do in just one or two days, they put that in YouTube, and they is all of them are more or less like a carnival, you know? This like histrionic. This is something that is always present in the in the in YouTube. What I think is who are teaching that is all around the world. When I went to your class, it surprised me so much how all these kind of video in YouTube are very different of what teacher and research were, are waiting about, from the kids, who are teaching this new way, this new way that is so close to carnival, to ideas of Bakhtin. It seems to me that participatory culture helps allows to go in another world, the world that we imagine, the world that is much better than this world. And this is difficult. In that way, I am learning much more from the kids than I am teaching to them. Because never I thought this idea about carnival. And it's really Bactinian. It's, I don't have an answer about that. I just put that here. So, so Sangeeta, in your work, you study about how people learn to dance, both in your documentary about Kathmandu and, and in terms of your stuff on YouTube. Um, as we were talking, I was thinking about the, perform the idea of remixing through performance and remixing between different media forms. And um, so I look at Bollywood dance that came out of film but then became a very strong performance form around the world and now is has now tra moved back onto YouTube and is again informing other forms of live performance. Do we have time for oh, the sure. little thing? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to do a little bit of a remixing exercise through Bollywood dance. Uh, yes. it's, it's only going to be like, I'm going to keep it down to like three, five minutes. So basically what I need is my volunteers up here. <laughs> I'm seriously going to do it. Yes. <laughs> so what's going to happen, I'm going to teach them about um, eight counts of dance. We're going to do it once without, anybody else? Only the people who you realize you can't do that. I know. This is the There we go. Okay. Okay, so the song is called Ishkamina, which means love a bitch. So we <laughs> All right, so we're going to start. You're just going to mill around for a bit until I give you a count. Then you're going to move your head side to side four times. If you can do it, if you 
from Indian hands, you'll just do one, two, three, four. Okay? <laughs> one, two, three, four. Then you're just going to wave your arms. <laughs> you can go. Right, and then you can. Then you're going to intertwine your fingers, and you're just going to wave your hands to the side. Yay! And to the other side. This is very impromptu. I'm wearing high heels and everything, so you can tell. That, yeah. Okay, so we're gonna do that. Okay, and then we're going to. Okay, I'm done. Okay, we're going to do, we're just going to cut it short. Okay, so we're just going to do one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And then you're just going to cross your hands here. One, two, three, four. Other side, one, two, three, four. And if you feel like it, you can actually gyrate in the <laughs> Okay, that's it. So we're going to do it with music now. And I want you guys as spectators to try and like, participate in some way. Okay. This is also to get the blood flowing after lunch. If you want to, I can teach it to you the same way I taught it to them, so now it's up to you to see what you can interpret and, and what you can what you can do. Oh you can whistle or you can go woo whatever. Do you want us to mill? Actually mill a little bit? Actually if you feel confident and I, the music starts out and you're kinda of walking around then I'll count you in. So you don't need to be in a line if you feel confident. <laughs> a lot of people throw money, which might be nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for those of us in academia, we really need that. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> we need that. <laughs> money, yeah. All right, I'm going to play them music. Sure. <laughs> and then if you're interested in class, you see me out here. I'm going to cut over it. Bollywood dance is a is is a now a global culture which really grew out of remixing, and 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 it grew out of remixing even in the form that it takes in the films because the movements I use right now they may have come from, you know, hip hop, Indian dance, anywhere, and that's how Bollywood dance actually grew. It was called Hindi film dance until about 1990, when Bollywood became the term. But and then when it was in the from the films, it's migrated back into live performance when it's again localized and remixed and it's actually been um, for a it's been quite a interesting process but it's also made it very difficult for the dance community which which I actually deal with it's made it quite difficult for them to accept Bollywood dance because kind of like well how it doesn't have its roots in a particular uh, you, you know there's always constructions of authenticity but this the, it's harder to construct a con authenticity in Bollywood dance and so it's actually you know I think CMS was extremely useful for me to look be able to look at it okay <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, I think, I think uh, this experience of dancing is a good build-in to the next topic I wanted to put on the table, which is the notion of the civic. I mean, whatever happened just then was a moment of communitas, of community coming together uh, through our bodies, through our, our mutual laughter. Something happened here that made us feel a little closer for a few minutes. And that that's structure of feeling, to use Raymond Williams' terms, is more than or different than a structure of information, a kinds of, you know, the, the, the news that we receive. So when we created this, when Mitch and Chris Csikszentmihalyi and I created the Center for Future Civic Media, we made a decision not to be citizen journalism or, you know, civic news, but to think of something larger than that, a notion of civic media, and underlying that's a notion of the civic. And I, I, Mitch, I want to give us a progress report on what's going on there as, as you guys are thinking about things since I've left. Well, actually, I do like the way that you framed it as uh, not just focused on information, because I do think so much these days uses information as the central metaphor for drawing upon uh, of, and again, the, the word is all around us, you know, information technology, you know, the word just information comes up in all the different ways, or ICT, you know, the way you think about uh, uh, too often new technologies, new media are enmeshed with information, uh, whereas in my mind that's not where new media, new technologies are going to have their biggest influence. Of course, access to information is very important and it does play a big role and it is doing certain things to change us, but the ability to uh, engage people together of both understanding one another and, and connected together in shared activity is, I think, is really central for, for new technologies and new media. And it's a central focus for the Center for Future Civic Media of trying to see, it makes explicitly a distinction between, there's so much effort these days, not just on information, but when one talks about community, there's so much focus on virtual community of connecting at a distance. And of course, that is, you know, there's lots of new possibilities opened up by connecting at a distance. I think one thing that the Center for Future Civic Media has done is to uh, specifically uh, focus on a different aspect of community, the community of people, the proximal community of people who you engage with uh, in your local interactions, uh, whether it's through where you live, where you work, uh, through your uh, local communities. And I think that's an area that hasn't been focused on enough and uh, an area where I think is really centrally important for people to start uh, seeing the new possibilities of how new media, new technologies can change the ways that we engage with the people around us and build new forms of community. Uh, I guess the center was started partly because of the concern from the Knight Foundation of what was going to happen as local newspapers started going away, because local newspapers had played some had played a role of the social glue within local communities and what was going to take the place. And I think that continues to be one of the things that we look at at the center is. Uh, how can we use new media, new technologies uh, to strengthen the social bonds in local communities and support new forms of civic engagement? So there's, you know, several themes that have emerged over over the last couple years of things with, you know, themes around mapping of how you get to understand your local community by using new media, new technologies to have new ways of uh, getting an understanding, and not just mapping in the most literal sense of looking at a geographic map, but mapping of just looking at relationships within the, the local connections that you have. Uh, so this idea of using the technologies and new media to rethink the relationships that go on in your local communities in order to strengthen the social bonds and, bonds and civic engagements is something that 
uh, we continue to look at and I think is uh, uh, an important area that there's still lots to be done. And that's, that's an area that I'm deeply in, engaged with still, both in, t I mentioned last night, the civic media class that I'm going to be teaching in the fall at the Nexus of Communication in journalism at USC and the work that Sangeeta and I are doing together, which involves multiple CMS alums, uh, Lana Swartz and uh, Kevin Driscoll. I, I probably learning all your first names as I sometimes can't remember the last names. <laughs> We're such, uh, so anyway, Kevin Driscoll and Lana are both part of the, the, the group we've built there. You know, we've written a paper <laughs> collectively, sort of summarizing the progress, and it was really interesting as we were writing it. It was a moment of, almost a, a moment of realization, but it was almost something apparent that was staring at us. Was was the fact that actually the local is incredibly important for a lot of the communities that we're looking at. Let's say the Invisible Children um, community, which is a group that's uh, engaged around um, uh, ch children children warriors in Uganda and they're actually trying to and child labor in Uganda and they've mobilized um, young people in new ways really using a lot of new media forms using a lot of um, participatory culture principles pop culture aesthetics but they work through local chapters in high schools where they actually so they have a system where they take their documentary films and their media on the road they and they call themselves roadies when they go and they actually come into a community show the films have an event have a slumber party of sorts mobilize kids around the issues and they they actually take some of the kids to Uganda to actually experience locally what is going on there. Um, the Harry Potter Alliance also works through local chapters. And so that was actually something that, you know, it was something so apparent, but I think we actually hadn't focused on it enough. And um, we, I, most of our groups actually have a very specific local component. The question is whether, what's really been interesting is where the point of entry is into these communities. And for, we're seeing a very broad range. Some are really entered from the virtual space and then they go local. Some grew from the local and now are really operating in a, net, in a virtual network, so. Yeah, see the interplay between the local and the virtual, I agree, is something that's really important. Yeah. So Aaron, when we think about the new media literacies, one of the shifts we made was from thinking of literacy as an individual skill the thinking of literacy is a skill, that, a social skill that takes place in communities. And can you share a little the implication of that, that insight into the work that we've been doing? Yeah, um, I think one of the perfect examples of that is how we shifted from our first teacher strategy guide, which was where uh, it was on reading in a participatory culture and very much on remix, which we were just talking about, to the second strategy guide, which um, is not as we haven't really been able to publicize as much, but it was on mapping in a participatory culture. And we've recently released it, and there's Kelly who worked on it. Um, and what we realized in the second guide is instead of internally uh, bringing up just a few experts to the table and focusing on on one specific example, which was Ricardo Pitzwiley's uh, theater performance of Moby Dick Then and Now in relationship to uh, Melville's book, with the mapping guide, we really involved the community. We, we first said, what is our expertise? And our expertise was that we really understood the new media literacies. So we started this guide with an ideation session, which is often used in corporations to you know, bring a variety of experts together to brainstorm on a specific theme. And our theme was mapping. And from that, you know, we brought geographers and teachers and media artists that had been focusing on mapping, and from that, we collected all this debris, a very much social construct, that we could then 
start kind of breaking into what were the different elements of thinking through mapping in a participatory culture. And some of the themes that emerged was, was um, this layering effect of community. You know, this idea that perhaps the whole connecting it to local to global, that we have a local construct of our own stories and then through new productions, new, new technology that we can actually use, other people can layer their stories on top of it. Um, and, and there was also the whole idea of mapping in a popular culture and how you incorporate gaming into telling, involving the community, such as alternative reality games. And one of the key ones that emerged in our discussions was a world without oil which I think is an incredible example from Jane McGonigal that developed it and talked about um, um, where people completely changed their lives through playing this game. They started actually um, make, you know, um, taking over their landscaped gardens and um, making it a vegetable garden so they could live off the land or gave up their car and started biking. And originally it was a game, but then it became a way of life for them. You wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I'll just dive in. Uh, our last session was on collaboration, and this is participation. I, I'm curious to hear what you think about what participatory does that collaboration doesn't, you know, as sort of a key word, as a way of thinking about media, as a thinking about sort of how you analyze something. And I'm, I'm wondering what participatory adds uh, in a way that collaborate, collaborate might obfuscate or, or, or draw our attention to other things. If you have any thoughts, I'd be curious to hear. Um, I, it's interesting because when I hear you say that, I, I can't help but think of the New Media Literacy Collective Intelligence, which we've talked about is probably one, Henry, is one of the top new media literacies most al in alignment or associated with participatory culture. You know, this pooling of knowledge together towards a common goal. And when people first know that, their first level of understanding is collaboration. Um, but collaborate, but we, we know that that's only the ice, you know, the tip of the iceberg. That um, to really understand participation, it goes beyond teamwork to being able to respect each other's roles in a community and understand each other's expertise and what we can both offer to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say that collaboration as we practice it in CMS has most of the traits of participation, but collaboration in other contexts doesn't necessarily. The collaboration can be highly hierarchical. It doesn't necessarily equally value the members of all the contributors. It, it doesn't necessarily have porous space between expertise. You know, it, it, it isn't as open to new people coming in and learning from, from veteran participants. There's lots that we use in the notion of participation that connects collaboration with democracy. And that that's why these two concepts are really stitched together here. You know, I, I've been distressed that uh, the pickup of the phrase learning 2.0, because to me, Web 2.0 is a business model, not a pedagogy, not a set of cultural practices. And that one of the values of the concept of participatory culture is that it insists that there's something deeply cultural about what we're describing that doesn't come from the technology. It comes from using technologies in particular ways to support much longer standing practices. So lately I've been sort of making fun of the web 2.0 notion of the tracing history of the web over about a 20 year period and ignoring all the cultural precedents to it. So I talk about web negative 10, 
right? And which is only the beginning. I'm sure you can go back further, but negative 10 was the toy printing press movement in the mid-19th century where kids were taking, young people in America and around the world, taking toy printing presses and hand-setting type to publish their ideas, their arguments, their essays, their fiction, and sharing them in a network, the beginnings of the Amateur Press Association in the United States, which allowed them to connect with kids in other regions, that allowed them, they, they've developed a, a set of abbreviations which they used to uh, communicate with each other that are not unlike LOL and the other sort of abbreviations we use on the internet today. For all practical purposes, it was a small-scale version of the web. It was a deeply set of cultural practices. The historian Paula Petrick, who writes about it, tells us that it was a place where women and men fought over women's rights in American society in the 1860s, that by about 1870, African Americans were beginning to assert their voice in it, and the politics of race had to be played out through that space. It turns out to be a deeply important part of the history of media, and it is tied to technology. But what we see is that the technology over time, people have mapped participatory practices onto a range of technologies. Each new technology facilitates, enables new kinds of participation, but the urge to participate is greater than that. And I think, to me, what differentiates from collaboration is collaboration can be very fixed. It doesn't have to be democratic, although I think good collaboration is in some degree. But participation is tied to the notion of citizenship in a deeper level for me. So I just want to echo what Henry's saying because he's talking about his, his beliefs and his ideas, but he also really puts it into practice. And uh, when I was in CMS, I for the first time really felt like I was a participant in something bigger than myself. And it wasn't just about collaborating, but it was really being part of this community that I, you know, I really felt like a citizen of this community and really had never been able to participate at that depot level before in my life. Uh, and I think that you know really changed the way that I think about uh, engaging in education and, and definitely when I'm teaching my classrooms, I try to instill that kind of culture in the way that I teach and the way that I uh, in, try to help people learn and participate in their learning. Uh, I also want to say as someone who uh, took their certification exam and the question was on Web 2.0, I, uh, I definitely felt that pain of having to write about something uh, in a way that I, I had to... Uh, you know, basically kind of change the way I think about Web 2.0 for the three-hour exam just so that I could get through it and uh, pass. But, you know, something that is really important is that, you know, CMS, you know, a lot of people have been saying that, you know, CMS kind of spoiled them for the practical world and having to go out into the work world, but it also spoils you for other academic experiences. And, you know, it's, it's definitely, for me, you know, going into another academic environment, I've, I'm definitely spoiled in the way that we thought about media and culture. And it's, you know, it's not the same, they're not the same discourses in other academic environments. And I do think it's also important for people to, you know, be spreading that kind of discourse and, and be part of that kind of discourse in other academic worlds as well, um, especially in the, the education world, where people are, you know, then learning that and going into the classrooms and actually making, making change with, with the new citizens. All right, Beth? Would you be so good as to recap and maybe deepen some of what I'm hearing about participation and community, and if you see 
a new kind of configuration or a change configuration of community. In my own research, I'm seeing with some of the network tools that we have, newly available, visual, real-time interaction, and the rest, I'm seeing different behaviors with communities. And some of it seems very marvelous and productive. And, um, and some of it also seems to be the kind of uh, incredible energy we see around like the, the tea baggers, where you have a group that's practicing a kind of resistance culture and using all the same media strategies that perhaps Obama also used to be successful in his campaign. So um, you, you guys have a great diversity of experiences. So I just want to hear a little bit more kind of um, uh, organization for me about how you're thinking about community and participation and uh, if you could just go a little bit deeper on that, if you don't mind. I was thinking before, and you you give me the idea to 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 bring here this this topic. I was reading yesterday a book from Manuel Castell about the power of communication, and I was really surprised about that because it filled me to think about what is power in in participatory culture, and it's having a lot to do with what you are presenting, because what happened there. What happened when we have new technologies and power relations are changing there? Because I think in education, the topic of power is really, really important. Who has the power in the classroom? And who has the po For me, this is the, we need to go to this topic. And this topic has to do with democracy and has to do with, with, with citizenship and everything. In that way, I feel that technology is changing in a double way. In some way, things are being much more democratic. But in another way, things are not being so much democratic. Because for some people, we are using a lot of technology. And we have, I don't know, we have more power or less. But I think that the power of technology and the power of communication is really important. And Manuel Castell said, I was really surprised about that that communication is related with the power of mind. Who has the most powerful mind? How technology is empowering our minds? This is the topic from my view, but I don't have an answer. Just I want to bring the topic here. Maybe some things that go through my mind are issues around centralization versus decentralization, which also relates to topics around power. And of course, new technologies and communication technologies can be used to centralize or decentralize, and we see them used in both of those ways. Uh, and in fact, sometimes, so insidiously, things that seem more decentralized, in fact, are just being used to perpetuate some central idea, but then gets everybody to parrot it. So I think also just trying to have better ways of thinking about the ways in which, I think, one thing that unites the type of views that we have in, on this panel and the work that we do is really trying to see technologies and communication technologies uh, really about being able to support and amplify people's voices as part of a community, of really being able to support individualized versus voices, diverse voices, is something that we know is a potential that can be supported and fostered through the technology. Uh, but it can be equally true of a type of controlled message that gets repeated by many others and really doesn't lead to a diversity of voices. Uh, so I think that's something that needs to be continually rethought. And it seems to me that this comes through with each new generation of technology, the same issue comes up over and over again. And as 
we have new generations of technologies seemingly coming along more quickly than ever before, it seems we, re we have to rethink and refight these battles over and over, even after it gets explored through one generation of the technology. When the next one comes around, the same issues have uh, come up and need to be thought, at, thought, at, thought about again. In the communities that we've been looking at, the graduate students have been looking at at USC, it's been, we've really tried very hard to separate um, notions of ideology from the, the ways that the communities work. And I think what's been really, what we are finding is that there seems to be a very interesting process of learning, of community learning, and there that's actually quite empowering that's going on in terms of how skills are transferred between the, the members of the community and how decisions are made about particular actions. And it seems, and you know, it's just sort of the assessment of, well, we're going to take action around a particular entity, um, like when Lorraine's, um, when race bending actually came into being, if um, I can speak about that more later, um, which was actually a, a group of fans organizing around a casting of a film that, you know, that they disagreed with. And um, we found that actually those, there seems to be an interesting process in, in place at that, at that level. So we're separating it, we're actually separate, that seems the processes and the skills that are learned then seem to inform a greater quality in terms of the ability to engage and think about, pro, uh, consider different possibilities, seek out information, ask questions that in a way that hadn't been asked before. So for the, some of the members, we see that this, the community actually becomes a point of entry into <laughs> thinking differently than they have thought before and then feeling like they can take action on other issues on, at some time at some point. Well, you know, Beth and I had a discussion earlier in the week about the Tea Party. And I, I sort of wanted to just repeat here a little bit of what we, what we ended up saying there, which is to say that it mirrors in a lot of ways the participatory structure we've described. It doesn't have a strong leader and in fact actively resists when Sarah Palin or any other political leader tries to step up and present themselves as the leader of the Tea Party movie. It's, it's deeply anti-authoritarian in structure. It's geographically localized. It involves practices of remix. The, the Obama Joker image is one that it's deeply resistant to authority. And this is something that confounds, I think, a lot of people in cultural studies. Going back to the 1980s, uh, John Fisk would be challenged because he would describe resistance and all of his examples would be progressive. And cultural studies wasn't ready to deal with resist reactionary politics as a form of resistance. There was a little work in the 80s about conservative women in women's studies circles and trying to understand well, how you could be conservative and, a femin uh, and have a politics about women. Uh, but we've ignored that, and we've ignored it over quite a long period of time. You know, I remember when Howard Dean said that the Democratic Party needed to understand the people who had Confederate flags on their bumper stickers on the back of their pickup trucks if it was going to understand and build solidarity around class politics. And he got called a racist, essentially, by his opponents. It was a cheap, turned into a cheap shot and wasn't a conversation the Democratic Party was prepared to deal with. And now we are at a moment when they're one of the most powerful movements in the country, one of the most highly visible movements in the country, is a reactionary resistance movement. And we don't, cultural studies and media studies doesn't have tools to ask why they're doing it, how they're behaving, and it is far too easy for us to dismiss them as ignorant uh, birthers and conspiracy theorists and so forth and not understand what the deep emotional resonance of the protest means to them and to truly examine to what degree they are embodying a notion of participatory culture. I'm not here to celebrate them. I, I fundamentally disagree with them. But we've got to understand them 
as a field if we're going to be able to engage with the world of politics that they are very much a part of right now. And they're an embodiment of this bottom-up grassroots energy, whether we like it or not, that we've got, we've got to start thinking about. Over there, yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, I would like to come back to the question of education, 21st century and transmedia on participation. And it's said that in the 20th century, um, education was all about somebody asking a question which answer he knows. That, that was all what education was about. And today, I think, it's all about asking questions that there, uh, which answer we don't know, which is very hard for the institutions, um, very hard for the teachers, very hard for power structures to ask a questions and don't know um, what the real answer is. And I was wondering, in the fields of work that you are working in, what are the questions where you don't know the answer and have to work with people who have to come up with the answer? Well, uh, for a very specific example, as I mentioned before, I worked on a game about the Boston Massacre, and you know, again, there's no clear answer about who is, you know, who is necessarily instigating this so-called massacre to begin. And one of the things that we did was we had uh, we basically broke the Boston Massacre into a bunch of different perspectives, and each student that saw that played the game got a completely different set of perspectives on what happened at the Boston Massacre, and then they had to deliberate what happened. And so our goal was you know, that they'd start to reconsider uh, the idea of history and to start to uh, kind of reconstruct and reinterpret for themselves what may have happened and, and why there were so many multiple perspectives on history. And, and of course, that's you know such a almost like a paradigm shift about how you teach history, right? You're not asking a question who started the Boston Massacre, who instigated it, right? Here's the date, but you're, but you, you know, there, there's no clear answer. And, you know, finding out how teachers really reacted to that. But then if you think about it, that's, you know, that's the way that historians actually think about history. They, they interpret it and, and they use different sources and they, they try to think about the biases inherent in how you're looking at this moment and how that might affect the way that you're looking at history and, and current moments as well. So I think that, you know, there is starting to be that shift in thinking and, and attitude shift, but, you know, it's slow. And, you know, places like Scholastic that I work for, you know, they're, they're not so quick to be jumping on, you know, making products that necessarily support those kinds of learning goals, you know, they're still trying to create project products that uh, speak to the standards because that's what makes the money. And, you know, ultimately what needs to change is that, you know, standards need to change, policies need to change that support the learning goal of, you know, participation of, of critical thinking, of, of ethical thinking skills, of, you know, of questioning, of, you know, reinterpretation, uh, of remixing, you know, those kinds of new literacies need to be incorporated into the policies that guide what schools do. For me, it's less of a shift from asking questions where we know the answer to asking questions where we don't know the answer to rather shifting to creating context where we're having learners figure out what questions they want to be asking uh, and, and trying to find questions that are personally meaningful to them now again, this, is, this adds extra challenges to education. Uh, if it's hard enough to be the educator in an, in an educational space where you're raising questions where you don't know the answer, it's even harder to be supporting others to be raising their own questions and each doing it. And, but it feels to me the most important thing is to be supporting people 
in finding questions that they're interested in and then scaffolding them in the way that they know the right way of trying to you know, explore those questions and to make progress in making sense of those questions. Um, I, I, I think that one thing that why it's been hard for teachers to switch from like, okay, I know the answer so I can, it, it all goes back to grading, you know? Just not only teachers are asking how can I grade this, but, but, t but students themselves say, okay, how can I, what am I going to get for my grade? And we found that um, in the research that we did in pilot studies, um, the younger kids were more eager or kids that weren't going to college yet, had a little bit of time to just play and experiment, were more willing to, um, to not ask those questions about a final grade than like for an advanced placement class that was like only concerned about how is this going to affect me getting into the college that I want to get into. So when you think about that and we start creating these new practices to put into the classroom, you know, we need to also think through this whole change of standards, change of policies, create new forms of assessment models. And um, I, I, and I don't know if y'all know, of, but um, James Paul G and the MacArthur Grant, they've received a 21st century assessment project and we worked very closely with Dan Hickey who's a part of that to really look through creating new modeling for assessment which focuses more not on the product the end product but actually kind of the events throughout the process that we go through and those type of scenarios can be then taken up into having students ask their own questions and create some sort of participatory review process where it's not always ending up on the teacher being the one to cre create the final grade but perhaps the classroom together can actually review each other. Just a continuation of this topic, I think an interesting way to look at that question about open-ended learning is literature and great storytelling, that you know, some of the best stories both know the answer and then have openings for you to add in so many layers of your own interpretation of what's going on. And um, in our work in doing these sort of outdoor media projects, I found the real world is amazing for things like that. Because when people are outside in real environments, looking critically at a building or a structure, or even just listening, um, they're going to discover so many things about uh, about the world around them that's their, their own. It's their own experience. And so uh, I hope that that becomes part of what we do more and more is, is, is having kids explore their neighborhoods and, and be out in the real world using digital media to, to help them attuned to that, that learning process. I just want to add something about that because I actually saw something um, recently about getting kids out in their um, in their environments and exploring it. And um, I'm loving some of this new RFID material that can because it's not specifically tied to kids going outside but they're only looking still here. <laughs> but they can actually look out and look around and look at their environment. And I think that's really important to think about when you're thinking about community is, is our relationship of full embodiment into learning and not just our relationship with, even if it's a mobile device, the control of the screen. We're working on that. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, and I think the idea of taking inspiration from literature is deeply embedded in the reading and participatory culture work that when Kelly and I have been doing and the work we've been doing with Ricardo Pizzuoli, who spoke, asked question last night, at the forum, who's a powerful educator and theater director who really encouraged kids to read with a questioning mind and a creative mind and to reimagine great novels as in, you know, and we connected because it was very much like fan fiction, the ways in which he thought about teaching 
Moby Dick, of asking who these characters would be in the 21st century, of what Moby Dick would be like if it was about the drug trade and not the whaling trade, and it sort of push beyond, not only build on the questions of the novel and get kids thinking deeply about the characters in the novel, but transforming the novel through remixing, through participatory practices, so that there are new stories that come out of Moby Dick, just as Moby Dick itself was built from Shakespeare, from the Bible, from Milton, from many other sources that fed into that, that particular work. And so it allows the dialogue that literature represents to go on for another cycle of creative work. And that's something I think very much has informed the spirit of what we've been doing with Project New Media Literacies. So I have the reluctant task of closing this off. Uh, we now, I think, we have coffee waiting back in, on the third floor. So th let me th join me in thanking these excellent panelists. <laughs>